0: So, uh, good morning. Uh, glad you're here. My name is Kyle. If we haven't met yet, lead pastor of Generations Church. One of the things that we talk about often is, I mean, you see Richard and I, have you know, doing a little bit of that up here. It's it's because we've gotten to know each other. Um, we hope that as we gather together each and every week, that that you have that kind of relationship with people where you can tease each other, get to know each other, and then just like. Be one together. Like, we really are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. And so, we want to get to know your story and have your story just join in with the good and really cool story that, that God is creating here at Generations Church. And so, please share that with someone around you or grab a prayer or praise card and, like, help us get to know you a little bit, you know? And, and we would love to be able to follow up and stay in touch as well. So maybe to follow that up, a little bit of a kind of personal question. Uh, how many of you have a disaster plan? So growing, okay, I see, I see a few hands raised. Okay, so for, for me growing up in the Midwest, uh, we, we had a lot of uh, tornadoes. We had a disaster plan for tornadoes in my household. It was a multifaceted plan. Uh, if you were at home, you would go down to the basement, and, and there in the basement, we had this one section that we would go to, and we just had a little old TV, and so we could preoccupy ourselves. And, and there was a lot of tornadoes, you know, coming through spring and, and in the summer, or the p- potential there. We had in the basement stored up drinking water, food for a family of, of five. For, for a little while, If you know, if the, if the power went out, we had a, a generator. Um, if we had that drinking water because if our well was contaminated for whatever reason then we'd have that water and it was it was a modest amount so so not quite like apocalypse level like coming preparation but enough to say if we had to get through several days then we had a plan, And my parents had gone over that plan with me and my two younger si- siblings. And, and I remember there were, there were times when my mom was a ba- basketball referee and my dad was away on business that we would get those tornadoes warnings. And if we were home by ourselves, we knew exactly what to do, even from a young age, go down in the basement and just kind of wait, wait it out. As we got older and we were able to drive and get around, our parents uh, went over with us what to do if you're out driving around and there's a tornado. It's like get out of the car, find the ditch, and get in the lowest point, especially if you see one. And now i got to say, it's only happened a few times in my lifetime, but I was grateful that they had prepared us for when disaster struck, that I knew in that moment almost instinctually Snap into action. There was a conversation ahead of time. And really, you'd think that, oh my goodness, there's a tornado ripping through the cornfield down the way. It wasn't really ever scary because we had been trained, we had talked through it, we had prepared. And so we just were able to do it and snap into action. Now, we all know the fickle nature of daily plans. But there's something comforting in a well-prepared plan. Especially for when disaster strikes. We've kind of gone over that with my kids for a house fire. Here's what you do door, window, neighbor's house, here's what to do and how to snap into action. A kid whose parents weren't together wanted uh, his father to take him out. His father made the promise that he was going to pick him up, made these plans. This was the time before his cell phone, so the son was excited for his dad to pick him up, and he went out and sat on the porch. An hour passed, no dad. Two hours passed, no dad. As the hours passed, every car that went by, the kid sat on the curb anticipating, expecting, dad. Hours passed, and his mother ended up bringing him in the house, and then the conversation a few days later is that promise that, hey, I really will take you out. Um, be ready at this time. Second time is Father promise, and you probably guessed it. Sitting on the curb, hours passed. Expectation, excitement worn away, turned to dread. A third and a fourth. And when the fifth time came that the father promised to pick him up, the son didn't bother to get ready at all. In his mind, the father had set a pattern that his promises and plans didn't matter. What's interesting about our heavenly father is he may make you wait. It may feel like you're sitting on the curb for a very long time, but he won't leave you stranded. He's never going to be a no-show. Some of you are waiting for promises to be fulfilled. You're asking God to fulfill his promises. You want it to be soon, you want it to be now. It's something that's even in the Bible. But you know, there's a difference between feeling promises and biblical promises. Feeling promises is something that you maybe feel in your spirit that you desperately want. It's not necessarily something wrong, but it's not anchored in the word. What happens is that you end up believing or wanting something from God that he's never actually promised you to begin with. It's something that God doesn't biblically owe you. And so as we think of promises and what God has said he will do and who he is, we have to be careful that we aren't making Personal preferences, biblical principles. That we aren't taking personal preferences and making them seem like promises of God but aren't really there. Because what happens is when we take personal preferences and make them biblical principles, you create an environment of disappointment towards God in your life. You then start expecting Him to fail. You expect him to not show up when he's never promised something like that to begin with in the first place. And then you're mad at God because he didn't give you something that he didn't promise you. So as you engage with God, is it personal preference or biblical promises? See, in addressing a group of discouraged Christians, the author of Hebrews wants them to understand the benefits package that's available to these Christians because they are now discouraged. In fact, they've actually been expecting something from God that he never promised them, an easy life, that, that, that they would have all the answers at every moment, that they would understand always the next step to take, and rather he wants that connection. He wants them to be attached to him and live with him and respond in the moment of the, that they're found in. And what, so this, uh, this author, he wants them to understand that benefits package available to them in Christ in the moment they find themselves as that Christ is the embodiment of God is a stabilizing factor when the storms come because he is a promise keeper. And so with section, uh, with chapter six, verses 13 through 20, it's really this end of like this interlude. Uh, the author is, is, is wants to talk about Jesus as high priest and what it means for their life. And then he's got to kind of step back and say, listen, this is a deep and difficult topic. So we, let, me, let me exhort you, let me encourage you to, to focus on what it means to actually be mature. To, to what it means to engage God faithfully. And so he, he goes on this section in, in chapters 5 and 6 to, to direct them to say what it means to actually pursue maturity. And we're coming to the end of this interlude, and then he's going to get back to this idea of what it means that Jesus is this high priest, this faithful high priest, and what that means. But the problem is, is, is they've grown discouraged and weary and worn out. And the challenge is, is that even worth pursuing? Is maturity in Christ worth pursuing? And his resounding answer is Yes. He's like, quit letting these biblical promises and and these powerful realities just gloss over your head. Just quit quit tuning it out. Tune in. Like, pay attention. And so he's concluding this section in terms of building this argument. So his original point actually began clear back in chapter 5, verse 11. And he's making this transition. He's used metaphors like building and farming and pleading to maturity to now a final one of sailing. See, in life we need a security. We need something stable. Because we all crave that. Something that is sure so that we can move forward. See, the desire for security is a primal need. And it enables us to think outside of ourselves when things are stable. And so we try to cling to things and want them to be stable. But when they're not or they're taken away or can be shaken, then it seems so uncertain. But the plea and the the reality is that Jesus is a stabilizing factor. And with Jesus as a stabilizing factor you're going to be able to be anchored and tethered because without a stabilizing factor, you will either be shaken by the storm or drift away from your intended destination. And the intended destination that this author wants is for them to pursue maturity. The author provides this stern warning that there will be evidence of your salvation in your life. See, being around the church or even... The, around the things of God isn't evidence of salvation. The fruit of your life is evidence of salvation. And all of this may lead to our feeling somewhat insecure, a little unsteady. It, it may challenge our hearts and, and go, how do I know? And this is what he's trying to get to. Because you can know not because of your own success, or because your own surety, or sometimes even your own sanity. But you can know because of Jesus. See, he begins to make this transition. This audience, as he gives them this warning, and he says, Hey, but I know this isn't of you, because you've demonstrated a measure of love and good work in your life. And so even in this claim, the author goes back and forth between a person's response to God and God's character. And he reintroduces this idea of laziness. And it's not to be contrasted with this idea to simply do more, but it's to be imitators of. It's to take your cue from Jesus. And it's to not increase, increase quantity of activity, but have a quality effort in a specific direction. And so he lays out these couplets together that says it's always a response. The imitation is that of response. It's not do so then you earn, or do so that you can achieve, or increase the activity so that you can be sure. But it's based on who God is, then when you respond, it brings about something in your life the laziness charge comes when we're never willing to respond because of the difficulty see maturity again is a shift from ease to difficulty some of you have stopped engaging with God and his word because it's too difficult and you wonder if it's actually worth it will it actually produce a change in my life And sometimes it's easier to find a stabilizing factor somewhere else. Something more sure, more tangible. Because you can at least, even if it's dysfunctional, count on the dysfunction. And yet it's a known quantity. But part of maturity, part of rejecting this idea of laziness, is embracing that a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, you may be stretched into some difficult things. But even in the midst of difficulty, you don't have to be alone. Nor do you have to be unknown, nor do you have to not know what a proper response might be. See, what he starts to move into is this series of principles where it's a response of patience. He's calling them an action of patience. And our patience is anchored in God's promise. See, the author of Hebrews utilizes the story of Abraham to emphasize a point that God is a promise-keeping God. And he goes back and, and he's talking about Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when God calls Abraham to, to be Abraham, and said, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the nations. Why? Because you're going to be my representative. Because people have forgotten what I'm like, what I look like, how I act. So through you, I'm going to choose you, and now you're going to bless others. You're, you're going to embody my character and priorities, and as your family grows, you're going to represent this. Now the challenge is, at this time, Abraham's only 75 years old, and he's married, and he doesn't have any kids. And so God makes this promise. And so him and Sarah, then they, they, they don't get pregnant. In fact, they have to wait for 25 years. Some of you are unwilling to wait on God. It's like, ah, it's been 10 minutes. That didn't work. I prayed the prayer. Guess God didn't want to show up. 25 years. And then after Isaac is born, God says, hey, I'm going to lay out something. Go offer your, your son as a sacrifice. And so Abraham loads up Isaac, and he trudges up this mountain to offer a sacrifice. And Isaac goes, hey, dad, where's our sacrifice? And in the midst of that, Abraham goes, God will provide. Because he's got his eyes fixed on the promise. Because he knows what God has said and that God would be consistent with his character. And what's amazing is what's quoted here in Hebrews chapter 6 is God's response to that exact encounter where he says, I will indeed bless you, and I, will multi- and I will greatly multiply you. Because as they got up there onto that mountain, as Abraham prepares to go through this gruesome and almost cruel act, God shows up and says, hey, there's a ram in the thicket. See, as they went up the mountain this way, the ram was possibly coming up the other, never coming into view until the moment of need. Patiently waiting on God to provide and fulfill the promise that He said He would fulfill. It took 25 years and even longer in an experience like that. We're not very patient, are we? Noah waited a hundred, some odd years and more for, for rain to come. Joseph waited fourteen years in prison for God to rescue. David waited 15 years. Israel waited 400 years to be freed from slavery. Jesus waited 30 years before beginning his ministry and before he stepped into the public eye. What makes you think that waiting won't be an instrumental part of your life as a Christian? I don't like waiting. But God does a lot of work in the waiting. But we can wait because we know the outcome. Because the outcome is consistent with what he has promised. And waiting is terrible if you don't know the outcome. But waiting is possible if you know the outcome. See, it's like if, if, if you're starving of hunger, and someone comes along and says, hey, I, I've got some food to give you. I, I, I might be back in an hour. Might be. You may wait for that hour, and... you." You're going to be all kinds of anxious. Is the person actually going to come back? But someone who then says, hey, I guarantee you, I'm coming back with food in an hour. Here's my ID. I'm going to leave it with you because I'm going to need that and come back. You're going to have a lot more peace about the person showing up with food in an hour because they've given you something of themselves to then come bring you what you need. And that's what's amazing. The God of the Bible gives us something of himself that says, I'm coming back. I will fulfill and be consistent with who I am. See, if you don't know the outcome, then waiting turns into worrying. But if you know the outcome, then waiting turns into anticipation. What kind of food is he going to bring? He says things in the Bible like, take heart, I have overcome the world. Arrest, lay down your, your burdens, give them over to me. These are promises that are tangible and tactile. And some of you are so consumed by the external circumstances, and we all get there at pieces and parts, and even some of the consequences of our own lives, that we need to return and understand who God is. Some of you, got, you got to get yourself some pocket promises. So when the worrying starts... When, when you get concerned, when, when, it, when it seems like the situation is too overwhelming and it's going to overcome you or it's going to take you someplace that you're not sure you're ready to go, you've got some pocket promises. And so you may not have everything memorized in the Bible, but you've got some verses that you can go and cling to and says, no, God has promised this, that he will not leave or forsake, that he is coming back. That he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Yeah. Amen. It's like my mom used to say, if there's already some good food cooked in the fridge, don't be asking for nothing outside the house. <laughs> or in the case of my house, you may have to put some effort and cook the food that we already have bought, but you might have to do something. So stop going to eat from other places when you have a home-cooked meal already in the Bible. Y'all are searching for a fast food version of faith. And a fast food version of faith, what you're putting in, won't actually sustain you. So we better open up that refrigerator and get some of that healthy food that's found in the book. If you don't even know where to start, start with Proverbs. 31 chapters in Proverbs. Do a chapter a day. Today is what? February 4th? Read Proverbs chapter 4 read psalm 4 you need a word from god to keep your crazy stable because lord knows i do sometimes you need a word from god to keep you going it's also a response of endurance see our endurance is anchored in god's purpose we have a hard time trusting people because people change so much. On the extreme, we see this in our institutions or in politics. They say one thing and do another. But what's amazing is it's impossible for God to lie. He will never flake. He will never go dark. He will never ghost you. Now, we may holy ghost you with the spirit to ask you to respond and move, but he won't ever disappear from your life. His purpose in this world is to seek and save the lost, to rescue and renew creation, to reveal himself, to hang out with humanity. And oftentimes, we're the ones that want to run and hide. And so a major part of this passage is an oath. God does this for us so that we have a security that he won't go back on his word. Amen. And what's amazing is we we make promises, you know, pink, you know, pinky finger promises and and things like that or maybe in the courtroom swear on a bible cuz an oath is appealing to a higher authority. But God gives us proof by his sworn affidavit that his will is unchanging a word appearing in wills and contracts to the ancient world that speaks of these terms and conditions that could not be annulled, and his source of the oath is himself. So we need not to worry that the terms of God's promised inheritance are going to change. God's unchanging purpose means that he loves you and pursues you. Sometimes we get tired and want to stop, but God won't get tired and he will not stop. Because when we flee to him for refuge, it is refuge that we find. Remember, this is an encouragement to weary Christians. They feel like running away and looking for safety, that there's got to be something better out there. And the author says, don't run. Find your refuge, find your strength, run to Christ. Because sometimes this world wants to put a pep in your step and say, come on, you can do it. And let's just be real. Sometimes you can't. And that's okay. When what's holding you is the stability of Christ. Christ. Try to lose weight. Any doctor, whether Instagram or Real, will tell you that you can't outwork out a bad diet, that your nutrition matters. You cannot outwork poor purpose. Eventually, you'll wonder if you can either coast, and when you coast, your character might look different, or even if you try to outwork poor purpose, you'll eventually get burnout. Burnout stems from believing you're the source of success. Why isn't it turning out the like the way that I want? If only I had more say, more control, or people did it my way. Or you'll get in a bind and you'll become cynical. Why am I doing this? It doesn't even seem to matter. You're emotionally exhausted. Why doesn't anyone reciprocate? All I'm doing is giving. I just would love for someone to reciprocate and give me something back. seems like the cup is empty that no one else understands see on the pathway to maturity the plea and the push to grow originates in the rest received from god way back in chapter four of hebrews says that receiving the rewards that come from god's rest the purpose of god's rest is the realization that you aren't responsible for the outcome But you are responsible for taking refuge in his purposes. We may have to wait, but we don't have to wait and participate alone. If we can be reminded of the promise and the purpose that God has in the world, then we can keep going. Because we're not doing it alone. And ultimately, God is responsible for the outcome. And we've got to trust and live like that is true. And it's also a response of hope. See, for our hope is anchored in God's presence. When, when the author's talking about this, this inner place, he's talking about the temple, this, this, this holy of holies. And what happens is, is this is where God is at in terms of the temple. And again, these, these Christians are thinking about going back to an Old Testament way of life. So in some way, they feel like they've got to chase God's presence. God's doing something over here. I've got to run towards that. Instead of remembering and being reminded that while they were still sinners, Christ died for them. That they don't have to chase God to get to God's presence. That he actually chases them and comes to them. And because of Jesus, humanity and God can hang out together. See, no one could go into the holies of holies except for the high priest. And so the greatest problem that humanity has is our sin separates us from God. And it's not because God doesn't love us or want to hang out with him. It's because we create that barrier. We put up that veil. And all evil in the world comes from an increasing deterioration of humanity's sin problem. And Jesus enters in this place as a forerunner on our behalf. The once and for all sacrifice and advocate. The once and for all big brother a cleanser. And so when we are confronted by our own sin and recognize that we would rather run than take refuge. We can also be comforted by the fact of God's grace. That see we can be anchored in the promises when looking for answers. And God's promises are anchored to Jesus. These all come together in Christ. And sometimes we wonder, so what is actual hope then? If this is the reality, what is hope? We must not confuse Christian hope with what the world often calls hope. See, in a letter to Thomas More, English poet, Lord Byron wrote, But what is hope? Nothing but the paint on the face of existence, the least touch." ...of truth rubs it off. And when we see what a hollow-cheeked harlot we have got a hold of. This speaks of hope as a form of wishful thinking. In the words of playwright Jean Kerr, ...hope is the feeling you have that the feeling you have isn't permanent. But this insepid earth-bound emotion falls far short of Christian hope, ...which is grounded in the revelation of Jesus Christ... Encouraged by the Spirit's work with us and a cognizant of future realities. We can have confidence in who God is and how He fulfills His promises because He sent Jesus. And because He sent Jesus, and we are confident that God would fulfill His promise even over a long time of waiting, that we can also be confident in His return. And in that confidence of His return, it should produce us to get ready to set a plan of response to who he is and what he is like, to to seek purity, to exhibit patience, to, to know that he will provide the fulfillment that we need, to give us joy and ultimately and always provide stability, to be an anchor for our soul. When compared to God's work throughout the old covenant, the new covenant hope, the reality of Jesus' coming is better. Providing for the Christ follower something worthy of public confession. We don't have to run and hide. We don't have to be scared. But we can have confidence in who Jesus is. See, Jesus is the one who goes before us. Which means we don't have to enter alone. Jesus' advocacy and sufficiency doesn't change. Jesus' presence there in the inner place. Reminds us that God wants to hang out here with us. God wants to hang out with you at home. He wants to hang out with you at the job site. When you're out buzzing around in the car with the family, He wants to hang out with you there. When you're trying to make a decision about work or business, He wants to be with you in the midst of that. And remind you that as you make those decisions, as you make those life choices, to anchor those decisions and choices in his promises. So we can anchor in his promises when looking for answers, because God's promises are anchored to Jesus. The band's going to come forward, and we're going to sing one more song, just to kind of respond together and... In some ways capstone our time together. Now as the band comes forward and we prepare to, to sing, I think of Walt Whitman's "A Noiseless, Patient Spider." It says this, "A noiseless, patient spider. I marked where on one little uh, promotionary, it stood isolated, marked on how to expose the vacant, vast surrounding. It launched forth filament. Filament, filament, out of itself, even unreeling them, ever tirelessly speeding them. And you, oh my soul, where you stand, surrounded, detached, in measureless oceans of space. Ceaselessly musing, venturing, throwing, seeking the spheres to connect them. To the bridge you will need them, be formed, to the ductile anchor hold. To the gossamer thread you fling, catch somewhere. Catch somewhere, oh my soul. Whitman's poignant reminder shows our souls are ever attempting to anchor our lives. We want some stability. We want some security. We want to catch and hold on something outside of ourselves that will transform our detached existence to a state of stability. Yet in flinging our threads... Our aim too often is off, hitting water droplets and dust balls of the surface of reality, elements that themselves will soon evaporate or be swept away. Money, homes, positions, and even people are transitory. Such can provide no lasting stability in life. So the author of Hebrews invites us to a security anchored in the eternal realities found in the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where a truth-telling God encourages us by giving oaths that there is an anchor in the promises he provides that he is prime promise keeper and so when we look for answers God's promises are anchored to Jesus so take heart take hope be patient endure And have courage as we face the world because we don't have to face it alone and without someone who walked it with us and wants to hang out and walk it with us.